Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast, where we promote, educate, inspire, and entertain creators of all things related to fantasy and science fiction. In episode two, I interviewed DJ Butler, whose works include Rock Band Fights Evil, City of the Saints, and the Dragon Award winning Witchy Eye. All right. Hi, my name is Carson. You might not also know me from some of my videos as Forge with Troy. I have on the call with me David Butler, also known as DJ Butler. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Carson. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us some, um, what you've written. This is this is this is your promotion. What do you want to oh, everybody check, to know? Check check out how cool and sophisticated this is. So uh, so my name's Dave. I write fantasy novels. I publish with Bain, but also with uh, Wordfire Press and Immortal Works uh, and Knopf. Um, my most recent thing is the Jupiter Knife, which is book two uh, in a series. Here it came out, and I was just telling Carson it's set in uh, it's set in Moab, Utah. This is a this is a series set in the Great Depression, and it's about a, a man who is a sugar beet farmer and wizard, uh, and uses his traditional magical lore to battle the evils of the Great Depression. Oh, nice. Uh, um, so yeah, pretty well reviewed, and uh, you know, doing all right. Book two just came out. It ends pretty excited. It ends with a, uh, it ends in a climactic knife fight underneath Delicate Arch. Oh really? Uh, Arch's monument, yeah. Although it wasn't being called Delicate Arch at the time. Um, it uh, in fact, in fact, it, it's got a long history of name changes. At the time, it was being called things like um, the uh, Cowboy Chaps and the School Marms Bloomers. Uh, and even <laughs> Pant Crotch oh, was really? a name. Yeah, and then and then when the when they started to when they wanted to put out kind of more official maps and give it a sort of less rude name, uh, it was actually supposed to be Landscape Arch. Uh, but whoever was doing the map accidentally switched the names on Landscape uh, and Delicate Arch. But yeah, it's the it's that iconic arch in so many calendars, sort of freestanding. Uh, yeah. Story ends in a fight. The Witchy War is a uh, series, uh, four books out now. It's really two trilogies. There's a complete trilogy, and the second trilogy is started. That's an epic fantasy set in a 19th century America. Uh, it's about a young woman who is at the Nashville Tobacco Fair, uh, selling her family crop when she, when Imperial Army officers try to kidnap her, and she learns that she is the secret. Uh, hidden daughter of the dead empress and the living emperor is a is a usurper and a fraud and a murderer uh, and her uncle uh, and and wants her killed it's about her uh, her recovering her family's uh power and wealth and her contact with her father's uh lost goddess this is this has been uh i've been very lucky book two witchy winter won both the aml award and the whitney award book three won the dragon award for alternate history nice yeah so i i feel i feel very good about that um i've got uh kids series the extraordinary journeys of clockwork charlie here's book one and book three book two the cover fell out of my filter i don't know why Really what it is is a steampunk action-adventure rewritten story of Pinocchio. It's about a boy whose father is kidnapped, and as the boy goes to try to rescue his father, the boy realizes that he is not a flesh-and-blood boy. He is uh, a machine and was, in fact, built to be a kind of a weapon. Um, and then I've got various other uh, novels from traditional and, uh, and indie publishers. I've been writing for about... I mean, my whole life, but I started seriously trying to publish 
about 11 years ago, I guess. Okay. So do you know how many novels you wrote before you you got published? Well, the first thing I wrote was junk. The second thing got, thing got me an agent oh, who really? dumped me a year later. Oh. Um, but then my wife did a sort of rewrite on it and picked up uh, a book deal, although it never got published. So let's see. One, two. The third thing I wrote was probably Witchy Eye, but that was not published. Definitely wrote City of the Saints after that. It might have been like, so my first traditionally published novel was uh, was The Kidnap Plot, book one of the extraordinary journeys of uh, Clockwork Charlie. It might have been something like my seventh book I wrote. Um, and before before that got published, I had self-published City of the Saints. Um, so I had, uh, I had a novel. In fact, I might also have self-published Crashling by then. So I had a couple novels out in the indie space. Okay. I think this is good for future authors and wannabe authors because a lot of times your first, your first book doesn't get picked up, but it can lead to other things. Like you said, um, Witchy Eye was written a while ago, like your third or fourth book, and it didn't get published till how many years later? Uh, yeah, so I wrote Witchy Eye in like the spring of 2011, and I would have to double check uh but it came out in 2017 uh yeah that in fact that manuscript the editor who bought it had actually had the manuscript for four years oh really four four years to the month until she finally wrote it and said oh yep i want to buy this so yes there so my career is full of many morals (laughs) (laughs) the writers (laughs) don't give up really don't give up. That's true. That's a fair. That's a fair moral. No one look in this market. There are many ways to publish, and there are more ways to publish all the time. I think that's going to continue. Uh, the only thing that can stop you from publishing actually is is you. Uh, it's your decision to give up is the end of your publishing career. Yeah, there's very many people who have self-published, you know, done indie um, publishing, and have been very very successful. So sure. I think a lot of people have kind of a hybrid model too. Uh, writers who are sort of mid-list writers who are doing okay in traditional publishing, but if there's a book they can't, their editors don't want to publish, or maybe they want to have just kind of a different um, connection with their readers. You'll see them also self-publish and, you know, you, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't imagine that it's all, uh, you know, T-bone steaks and roses. Uh, I, I think it's still the case that the vast majority of books that are published, either by traditional publishers or uh, through an indie channel, are basically read by nobody and sell, you know, 50 copies or fewer. I, I know many people, this is sad, I, I know many people who have written a book or two books or three books and then just given up because they just said this is too... Um, it's just too hard. That's a lot of pressure on somebody if they're trying to make it in and, you know, they get the 50. That's discouraging. It is. And I think people also, um, I think many people come in with false expectations. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, they come in and, and will say, yes, I, I understand. I understand. Uh, J.K. Rowling was a fluke. That doesn't really happen. You know, it's going to be a lot of hard work. But in their heart of hearts, they they think that something like J.K. Rowling or uh, Stephanie Meyer is going to happen to them. And they read those books and say, I'm as good a writer as she is, or I'm as good a writer as Stephen King or whoever. And that may even be true. And it simply doesn't matter. 
and then people run into the hard hard reality that for most writers putting a book out is really just one step in a process that began years before with beginning to write and continues uh, on for years with more and more writing and more and more writing and also uh, promotion and uh, and cultivation of readers and, and many other things. Right. And what we talked about before, because of the, I don't, I wouldn't say easiness of the way to get books out, but it, it becomes more saturated because people can go, well, I can write this book in however long and get it out and I can write, you know, so many I, words a day. I think, I think easiness is true. And, and I think there's another issue too, which is, um, that the way the availability of things like OCR software um, and the way intellectual property laws work so that there's just kind of a trail behind us where depending on the country, you go back by about something like 70, 75 years and everything written before that, anyone can publish. So guess what? All those things are never going to go out of print again because it is easy. Someone just needs to go to a secondhand bookstore Get a copy of a book, scan it, and a couple hours work, and and uh, use GIMP for a cover, and boom, they've got a copy of Dumas or Jules Verne or Shakespeare or whoever they want uh, up on the up on on Amazon for sale. Right. And so what that means is, you know, practically speaking, thirty years ago against was other people in the bookstore, and that's just not true. Now you compete against every writer who ever lived. The number of people you're competing against gets bigger every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is because it's easy and cheap. And, and the easiness and cheapness is has a glorious side, right? It's a golden age for consumers. There's a ton to read. Yeah. You know, golden ages for consumers are rough for on producers. Uh, and so it means you're competing. It's more and more people, uh, and it's harder and harder to get a significant number, uh, you know, significant amount of attention. Right. You know, that saturation, it can help, but it can hurt. So let's talk about you. What about your, your writing habits? Um, have like a word goal that you do every day. Do you write a certain amount of pages or just sit down and go, okay, from nine to 12, I'm writing. However much I get done, I get done. So. I was talking with a friend of mine yesterday, answering kind of a similar question. Uh-huh. And he was asking about reading habits. He said, man, when do you read? And I said, listen, my life is like Donkey Kong, okay? You're like, oh, here comes a flaming barrel. I have to jump over it. Grab the hammer. Oh, go up the ladder. Nope, jump off the ladder again. Hey, the floor is moving. Here comes another barrel. <laughs> and I don't have any kind of habits, no? really. Um I have, there was a period when I first started where for about two years, I would get up every day, take the kids to school, and I would write my word count goal, really page count goal. Um, And depending on the book, that would be a chapter or half a chapter. So for a kid's book, it would be eight pages, but for a young adult, it might be 10 or 12. And for uh, an adult novel, it was, you know, probably 12. Um, And uh, that's no problem. Get up, write that. That's uh, two to three hours, then do kind of social media and stuff, be done with the writing by the time the kids came home. I did that for a couple of years. I look forward to doing that again, but I'm making a living other ways now. Uh, I'm a corporate trainer uh, and I'm actually an admitted lawyer, although I basically don't practice law. And uh, I'm in a, a partner in a small mergers and acquisitions consulting business. And so um, I, I write when I can, mm-hmm. and I write when I have to. Uh, 
uh, deadlines are very useful to me. And I will set aside weeks where, okay, there's no other work here. So I'm just going to have to write 16 pages a day. I'm just going to have to write 25 pages a day every day for these two weeks. And that'll be a quarter of the, uh, that'll be a third of the book. Uh Right. And I have been able to do that. Um, I have been able to be basically productive. Last year, I wrote two adult novels, one 200,000 words, one 100,000 words, uh, a kid's novel at 50,000 words, and a novella at about 30, plus maybe eight or 10 short stories. So I was actually pretty productive, not as productive as I wanted, you know, but but not, not because I am writing every day, which is how I would prefer to do it, just because when the flaming barrel came at me, I said, okay, now I have to jump over the flaming barrel. And what it's going to take is 25 pages a day for the month of January. Right. And so I would, I would write that much. So do you work from an outline? If you have only this concentrated amount of time that you have to do, or, or do you, are you able just to sit down and just write and go with it? I always work somewhat from an outline. These two books are actually outlined pretty thoroughly because I had a co-writer. And so we spent uh, a month uh, having hour-long phone calls to kind of plot out chapter, uh, starting first at a high level using a Hollywood three-act structure kind of plot outline, and then and then ultimately to a chapter-by-chapter chapter outline. And then we just wrote, we, we each wrote half a book over the course of a week. Okay. Much more typically, I have a kind of a uh, partial outlining sort of process where I will... I won't start a book till I know how I want it to end. I know what the climactic scene is, and I know the big things that have to happen on the way. Mm-hmm. And usually I know kind of, all right, you know, here's kind of a big marker about a third of the way through, and here's a different big marker two-thirds of the way through. Or For Witchy Eye, I actually plotted it out. Uh, the first draft had 30 chapters, and, or thir- uh, yeah, 30 chapters, and there was a basically an action climax every fifth chapter. Oh, wow. Um, and so, and each one was a higher climax. So it was like six steps mm-hmm. up in editing. It turned into 29 chapters, two chapters got pulled together, but still it's basically got a six part kind of structure. Uh, more typically I will know the big mile posts and I will know what the subplots are and how they have to go. And I will also have outlined the first five chapters or so, and then I'll start writing and I will keep working on the outline as I write. And the outline usually grows a little bit ahead of the book. So it's not strictly speaking, um, you know, seat of the pants, gardener, writer, where I just plant and see what comes up. Uh, but it's a more kind of a flexible outlining approach than a Brandon Sanderson-ish sit down with a spreadsheet and plot out every single thing. Okay. What about, um, what's your editing habits like? Well, how many times do you have to go through a book before you're like, okay, this is what I want to send off? So back in in the golden age where I was doing this sort of more full time, uh, so I would actually, for writing my 12 pages for the day, I would edit the previous day's uh, chapter. And uh, as I write, I find that I I have ideas and I go, ah, I need to go plant something in chapter two. I need to change this dialogue. And, and when I was able to write like that every single day, I just made those changes as they happened. So I'd get to the end and have basically a manuscript ready to go. Um, now, uh, I tend to usually have to write sort of more uh, quickly and under 
under deadline duress. So usually I'm accumulating notes. I'm writing as if I write them by hand. I don't, of course. I put them in like an Evernote mm -hmm. file. But I accumulate notes. And then I go back and do usually just kind of one pass through and then submit to my editor or to my agent. Then, you know, uh, Bain is usually kind of kind of one editorial pass and then kind of a couple of passes that are more in the nature of line edits, check for typos and things like that. So, you know, you look at my Bain novels, most of them have probably had basically two editorial passes. Okay. That's uh, plus polishing. That's probably pretty typical. Uh, Knopf had more like four. Uh, it's random house. They just, you know, this, they just uh, were more regimented uh -huh. about it. I've talked to um, a few authors that kind of do what you did in the golden age where they would go back, read and edit the day before his chapter or whatever, and then go on. And I've seen the people that I've talked to that have done that seem to have less edits than just burning through writing everything that's, you know, trying to, you know, throwing up on the page and then have to go back and fix it and rearrange it and try to come up with a, a coherent novel. I I think that is, yeah, that's the idea, and that's how it worked out for me. Maybe some of the downside is, A, it took a little time every day. So on a scenario where I, if, if I only had like, if I was writing every day, but I only had an hour every day, I wouldn't want to spend 15 minutes editing. I just, I just want, to, right. want to write it. Um, also, it did sometimes happen that I would write a chapter, then change it one way, then change it another way, <laughs> then change it a third, right? So, um, whole, so, I, so I, I think that maybe in some cases holding those uh, comments to the end might have resulted in less time spent editing. On the other hand, I also think editing what you wrote before is one technique to help you get started today. Right. If you uh, if you start by going back and you know reading yesterday and like okay fix 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 then it's easy to go okay now here's the first sentence for today and just get started right it's a way to combat writer's um, block yeah uh, where sometimes just looking at a blank page people sometimes can feel intimidated or have a hard time making themselves get get right going. so you said you don't start a book until you have the kind of the big climactic um, ending. You're probably like me and you just have a bunch of ideas in your head going around all the time. Like, how do you pick one like that? You know, that's that's the one I want to do um, or that you have enough of an idea to create a story from that. Well, sometimes I don't. So, for example, I just changed back to these mm -hmm. books. To tell you all. So uh, which I did well enough that the publisher Bain said, hey, we'd like to get some more books from you. I said, how about if I write you some pitches and show them to you? And they said uh, they said, great. So I put together five pitches. One of the pitches was for The Cunning Man. And I had promised uh, Aaron Ritchie that he and I would write these together if they ever got written. So I reached out to him and said, hey, listen, this is, um, you know, we're pitching this to Bain. And he said, there's no way Bain's going to go for it. And I said, yeah, there's no way Bain's going to go for it. But let's do the pitch in, uh -huh. right? And, I, and I, sent, I sent five pitches. And one of them was the idea that ultimately became the book in the Palace of Shadow and Joy. And there was The Cunning Man. And there's three other three other ideas, uh, two science fiction and, and one fantasy. And, um, and she eliminated two of them, but the cunning man was still in. She had comments and I called Aaron back and said, you know what? This one is still on the running. Uh, he said, she's never going to go for it. I said, she's never going to go for it, but she wants some more details. So let's do some more details. So we did it. And then it was down to two. And finally, 
and we did another iteration and then finally like this was the book series she wanted um and i i was stunned this is about a this is about a mormon wizard in the 1930s and this is a national publisher it is not being published by you know deseret book or somebody right, right? it's a full-on book about spell casting mormons in the great depression mm-hmm. so uh, uh in in a sense i didn't choose that it was what was going to be written right the publisher chose i'm perfectly happy you know uh that it got chosen it's it's been it's been great to write these and to have them out hope we get to write more um but the publisher made a choice and i've gone through sort of pitch um this is what this is this is one of the ways having a having a publisher having a traditional publisher varies uh differs from being self-published or having this you know a small indie publisher is uh is the publisher is trying to put out a portfolio of books and so the publisher may not be interested in just whatever you mm-hmm. write publisher may say i you know i need a science fiction novel i need a detective novel we are weak on urban fantasy or you know dave we already have three books just like this you're entering into a joint venture relationship and and you can't make your joint venture partner choose to publish right. So beyond that, when I was before I had publishers, when I was just writing, uh, it was it was really kind of a matter of what I wanted to write. And at first, it was so I write two I wrote two middle grade fantasies, and then I said I want to write something for adults. So I wrote an epic I wrote witchy eye, a big epic fantasy, uh, and then I steampunk had caught my eye, and so I wrote City of the Saints, which is a big steampunk mm-hmm. novel, and. Uh, uh, it was it was kind of what I wanted to write, it, and and that still happens. So, so right now, uh, I have to get a few things edited and turned out, but uh, I'm probably in a position where there are no deadlines on me right now, and so I can choose what to write. And so there's a project I've been wanting to do for a few years that I will probably finally get to actually. Oh, nice. Write, um, and that's sort of just a matter of you know I have other ideas. This is just kind of the one that I most want to write, really. And it may it may be not commercial. Maybe the publisher says, yeah, not this one, Dave. And I have to self-publish it, yeah. you know. Um, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I found that interesting that, you know, not only to promote you, that, but they need to promote themselves. Like, like you said, we're weak in this sort of market and we want to get stronger in that. And so they're, they're trying to, like you said, build a profile and, and try to be strong everywhere. Yeah, or we don't publish that. I think if I took a, a um, not I think I have actually done this. This is not hypothetical. If I take a young adult novel to my publisher Bain, they will simply say we don't publish young right. adult novels. So you need to go find somewhere else, some other way to publish. Well, it. that's a thing that I think you know wannabe future authors need to kind of realize. Like just because you got rejected doesn't mean that your work is bad. It just means that. You know, that could be it, but it could be the publisher's not looking for something like that right now and you try again, or you can ask them, I don't, I don't know if you can, but yeah, you can ask them, what are you looking for? And maybe I got something else that's like that. You can always ask. There's, there's no reason, you know, you need to, you need to realize from the start and always bear in mind that you are not somebody's employee as a writer. You are the owner of your right. own business. So, you know, if you're talking with a publishing business and they say, well, we don't want this one, uh, it's it's completely reasonable to say, OK, can you tell me what you're looking for? You know, what kind of thing, if if I brought it to you, would you be interested in? 
um, they may not be able to give you a good answer. Uh, or maybe, in fact, they don't want to tell you the truth, which is they just don't like your right. writing or whatever, right? So, um, but yes, you ought to, you ought to be able to ask. Uh, I, I absolutely agree with that. Fantastic. And I think there's there are many, many reasons why a book gets rejected by a publisher or a writer gets rejected by an agent that have nothing to do with how good you are. An agent may pass because she just can't figure out how she would sell your book uh, or she doesn't know anyone she could sell it to. She might even think someone else could sell it, but just not her. Those are not her contacts. Uh, people get dropped for social and for political reasons and all kinds of things other than, oh, this is a good or, or, or not a good book. That's almost... It's almost not even a relevant consideration. Keep trying, I guess, if you if you have rejection. Yeah, that's it. Your career is over when you give yeah. up. That's it. <clears throat> You've written a few books of alternate history. What what draws you to to that um, alternate history with a fan, in a fantastic setting, fantasy in a fantasy setting? I think all fantasy is really about Earth. Some fantasy doesn't realize it's about Earth, but Tolkien, for example, knew very well he was writing a catholic proto-mythology for his own native mm -hmm. england his and england is all over uh all over those books i like working sort of relatively directly with the real world uh maybe a because i'm interested in the real world i like history and and language and mythology and anthropology um but also there's a there's a storytelling advantage where working with real world people and events and places means that your readers have pre-existing information in their heads about those people and events and places if you if you as a reader pick up a book set in victorian england you already think some things right or wrong uh cliched or or accurate or whatever you think some things about victorian right. england and I'm actually rereading right now one of my very favorite novels. Uh, it's a spy novel called Declare by Tim Powers. But it's a spy novel. So it's about the real world uh, man, Kim Philby, who was the, he was Great Britain's sort of greatest ever traitor. He, he defected to the KGB. But it's also about gene, about gin, about genies. And it's about Mount Ararat. Uh, and it's uh, and it's the story in which uh, Kim Philby and the point of view, the main point of view character, are these sort of uh, magical twins uh, involved in this long-running espionage action to uh, to try to kill uh, the, these these uh, the jinn who were accidentally awakened by an earthquake on Mount Ararat in 1883, and who have been. Uh, uh, among other things, it's one of the jinn who has basically the patron goddess of the Soviet Union. So it's like this Cold War espionage, John le Carré style story, but it's got it's got genies and people performing these kind of dark acts of magic. And 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 you know, part of the awesomeness is it, of it is is uh, that that T. E. Lawrence is in it, and that you know, uh, it's set in places like Beirut and Armenia and Turkey. Uh, and, uh, you know, involves things like the Enigma machine and Alan Turing, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and also stuff that is just crazy over the top fantasy. At Interesting. The same time. I haven't read that book. I'd like to get it and read it. It's very good. Uh, that is an advantage, right? In alternate history, because then you don't have to, like, if you, if you do 
let's just say will of time, right? You have to do create everything, an economy, the currency, the what they wear. Whereas if you do an alternate history, like you said, there's also that seed of um, reality in that. And you don't have to come up with quite as much stuff. And I find that when I write, sometimes those ticky-tack details drag you down. And the, um, the web gives you a really great capacity to do research in ways that would have been just much more time consuming and difficult earlier because there are, uh, you know, historical reconstruction, uh, reenaction enthusiasts who have YouTube right. channels and who will say, look, uh, let me show you how to cast your own bullets on a campfire. Right. And, and here's the tool and you got to get the, a little bit of flash off and use the clips to do it. Um, and, uh, and you can, you can see that in five minutes. Uh, and, and put it in a book, or you can find recipes or details about clothing and how it was put on, um, which uh, which is uh, you know the kind of little vivifying details that I think really help a, a reader latch on to a story. Right, and nowadays you have you know stuff like Google Earth, to where if you're researching a different country, you can go and look at it and see like okay, what's here, so I can kind of get the descriptions correct. Yeah, that's true. I mean, for big famous sites like the Lascaux Caves, you can find photos. But absolutely, if you're saying, I wanted this to be set in a nondescript little paesino somewhere outside of Rome, you can pull up Rome, you can surf around till you see like a little village that's kind of about the distance you want, and then you can drop that little guy on the street and just rotate and go, okay, what does it look like? Oh, hey, look, it's orange stucco. Weird, I wouldn't have thought it. And move further down. Oh, notice the little fences, uh, yeah. right? Uh, uh, and oh, that's what you call a pharmacy in in Rome. So, yeah, it's um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, we're kind it's of in a research stuff. paradise for for writers. I think I would agree with that. Uh, let's see. I noticed on your website that um, you have many figures. Do you paint those? Yeah. What do you play? Yeah, I do. I'm in the wrong. I'm in the wrong part of the house to really show it to you. Um, so when I was a kid, I, I played some tabletop battle games, uh, Warhammer. I, I don't currently play any of those. Uh, I, the miniatures I paint are mostly for, so I play tabletop role play. And when I, um, which I did a ton in college and high school and then didn't do for, you know, 15 or years plus when I got back into it, I started with the classic call of Cthulhu campaign masks of Nerloth of Nyarlathotep, that group grew as we played. So by the end, there uh -huh. were like 10 people. And then, and then when we started this this uh, RuneQuest campaign, and RuneQuest is a fantasy game set in a sort of epic, epic comic fantasy world mm -hmm. of Glorantha, for the session zero in that game, there, that game, there were like 16 people that showed up. So I had to split oh, it wow. into two different groups. So actually, I'm a game master in two different ongoing groups one is basically my son's high school friends and a couple other kind of younger players um and uh they are still playing in glorantha um the other group will come back to glorantha glorantha is, is principally what i paint minis for it's the it's fantasy it's because i think it's a lot of fun to put trolls and you know warriors who look like uh, greek hoplites uh you know out on the board and and scenery and uh, and, and buildings and stuff 
with the other group, we played a couple games that we're actually playing right now. Mm-hmm. The adults actually playing a top secret campaign. Top Secret's a classic spy game and recently kickstarted a sort of third incarnation called Top Secret New World Order. So on Saturday, um, those guys will come over and they're uh, they're trying to exfiltrate a CIA asset uh, who is being held prisoner in the top uh, floor of the Arts Hotel in Barcelona by Catalan nationalists. And, and they've just discovered that... Uh, that uh, her kid is being held hostage and they've rescued a guy who they think is her husband and they're going to try and figure out a way to actually get her out of the building. Uh, and, uh, you know, they will, they will encounter some of the strands of the larger plot nice. uh, as, as though. So I don't paint minis for that. Um, I don't know if there are good, like spies minis. I'm sure there are, but I, uh, that's, that's pure theater of the mind. Um, I principally paint minis right. for fantasy. Nice. Yeah, my um, I have a twelve-year-old son, and a couple of weeks, uh, about a couple months ago now, um, we we started playing Dungeons and Dragons. We I'm starting him out with the classic, so, and he he really loves it. Um, I do miss living up in Salt Lake, where there's more opportunity for for doing that. There's more people around. There's hardly anybody here. Well, there's nobody here that plays it, so. I just have to be the GM to to my son and his couple friends, and it's it's fun. Yeah, Luckily now, technology is kind of advanced to where I'm trying to get a couple of my cousins to play. I, I got Simbarum. I don't know if you've heard of that for Christmas. And no, I don't yeah, know that. Is that a, a game? Yeah, it's RPG. Um, S-Y-M-B-A-U-R-U-M, I think. Oh, yeah. B a r o u m looks like, uh, and it's a uh, fantasy um, cool. setting it, that it looks kind of grim, dark, a little dark, dark, yeah, kind of gritty mm, fantasy. The artwork in it's amazing, but that's what I'm trying to get my cousins to to do that we can do all together online. Uh, fun. I've I've had pretty hit and miss experiences with Discord and Roll Twenty. I don't know why, but like usually. When I've got one person who's dialed in remotely, it works great. But once I have two, somebody uh, loses audio. At some point, the guy that everyone can hear him except me, and I can't hear him, which is a problem because I'm the game master. And so some guy will like talk to me for like a minute, and then I'll realize right. I can't hear what he's saying. But yes, uh, I think <laughs> I just have bad luck. Uh, it, I think that's a, a lot of gaming has been able to continue, even when people have. Uh, have basically right. not left their houses and that's one thing that's because of the technology you can still kind of do with this covid um lockdown that you know you can still get together um even if you're apart so absolutely well dave is there anything any tips or tricks that you want to tell us that might help anybody that wants to become a writer wow that's interesting that's an interesting question so this is probably not a tip or a trick this is an this is an exhortation Here, here's what i would say I would I would urge you write the stuff that nobody else but you can write. I think people will tell you you know how to be successful and and most most of the how to be successful advice sort of sounds like you know try and write what everyone else is writing and try and sell it the way everyone else is trying to sell it and make your books look like everybody else's and that may be the case that that is commercially good advice but I think the world doesn't need another 
another urban fantasy series which has a woman on the cover showing you her butt and holding a ball (laughs) of blue magic in her hand we don't need that we got a million you don't need another vampire school kids at vampire school experiencing first lust we don't need that we got a million of those okay um werewolves versus vampires romance we don't need that uh write something that is really just that is really just something that only you could have written i think that's the only way uh that you end up making a lasting and meaningful impact on the culture otherwise you're just swimming in the culture's currents and you're you're just going to disappear that's great advice um problem is you get bombarded with all those same stories and you still want to do it (laughs) but yeah that's that's actually great advice um and we all have a story to tell. I think we all have something that's unique to us. We all have different experiences. Well, I appreciate you logging on for this interview. Um, I'm, ex- I'm excited to, Thanks for having to read me, your person. stuff. Um, Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and share with your friends.